Welcome to the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, the show that brings you lively conversations with leaders, colleagues, and friends in healthcare, pharmacy, and beyond. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast. I'm Melissa Muir Corrigan, and I'll be your host. This is episode 15 of the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast in season two, and thanks for listening. We're recording this episode during unprecedented times, a pandemic. Please join me in gratitude for the frontline healthcare workers, which includes pharmacists, pharmacy residents, student pharmacists, and pharmacy technicians. I also wanna say thank you to all of those who are working so hard to make this world a better place for all of us. Well now, today, let's talk about a leader, Lisa Gersima, who is Director of Pharmacy and Residency Program Director at Alina Health in St. Paul, Minnesota. Lisa and I are gonna be talking about many things, including her insights on pharmacy's true north. I'll give you a bit of an introduction to Lisa and then let her also tell you about herself, her career, and her many varied experiences in life in general. Lisa has focused her career to advance a decentralized and integrated pharmacy practice model which emphasizes accountability, collaboration, and she has lots of examples on that one, and team-based care. She's a past president of ASHP, and her service includes the ASHP Board of Directors, Chair of the Council on Pharmacy Practice, and State Delegate. Lisa, thank you for being here with me today. Well, thanks, Melissa. I appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So before we get into your career experiences, can you tell me a little bit about your background, where you grew up, about your family, and your University of Iowa experience? Of course. I love being a Hawkeye. I'm an Iowa farm girl. My parents had a farm in uh, northeastern Iowa, a little town called Nashua, and that's where I went to school. I'm the youngest of four, so I am the baby of the family. I have an older brother and, and two older sisters, and then many uh, nieces and nephews, and now even uh, grandnieces and nephews. And I really think that was probably my first introduction to team-based care, because when you grow up in a farm, everybody has a job and you have to work together. So even when I was young, it might be simply, you know, riding in the tractor with my dad and I would, it was easier for me to hop in and out of the tractor and, and go help him hitch up a wagon or something like that out of the tractor. And I didn't even think anything of it. That's just what we did. You just developed that work ethic there and lots of things. I liked, I enjoyed growing up in a smaller town. I love that about the team-based care and also the work ethic. And, you know, I do think that's something that we see and we've learned from others who are from Iowa or from small towns. And, you know, we're in summer right now. And, boy, we really see the fruits of the farming labors with farm stands. And Iowa corn is just starting to come in in the last few weeks. So, gosh, what you described just really sounds good. So can you tell me a little bit about where you got to where you are today and some of your mentors and people that have influenced you pre and post pharmacy school? And it could be teachers, mentors, family. Well, you know, some people will always ask, you know, how did you choose pharmacy? You know, I have to say that my mom chose pharmacy for me. My mom was a, you know, a farmer's wife, uh, did a lot of, you know, work on the farm and, you know, had a large garden and active in the church and, and things of that nature, but, you know, hadn't gone to college or had a an official job, although I always tell people my mom worked, just she didn't get actually collect a paycheck for it. I knew that I wanted to do something in healthcare. I really thought that was uh, appealing to me. I wasn't quite sure what healthcare to go to. I mean, 
at the time when I was, you know, in high school, it seemed like medicine was a long time. You know, I always heard about the four years of undergrad, college, and then residency, nursing. I wasn't sure how appealing blood was to me, Yeah. but I knew I, you know, I liked science and math. And so that, it seemed like healthcare was the right way to go. And my mom actually is the one who said, you know, Lisa, why don't you think about pharmacy? And really it was a friend of hers. I lived in a small farming community, you know, there was a country church around the corner and that was really the center of the community. And one of mom's friends uh, who went to church there and was in her, you know, various neighborhood clubs and such, her son, you know, had gone through pharmacy school and he was probably about seven, seven years older than I am. He was, I think, the same age as my, one of my sister's. And she would just uh, hear her friend talk about what, actually, you might know him, Jim Ponto. Um, he, oh, yeah. Yeah. he nu- nuclear pharmacist. Exactly. Right? Yeah. He was yeah. at the University of Iowa for many, many years and a pioneer in his own right. But mom heard what his, his mom, Betty, had said about him. And she kind of thought, well, I think Lisa can do that, too. <laughs> and so I started looking into it. And I, I thought, yeah, I resonate with this. And so that is really why I, I selected that. So then I went to the University of Iowa. I didn't really think of any going anywhere else. They had a pharmacy program. And at the time I went, uh, this was back in the, in the late 70s, they were still, their bachelor's program was their entry-level degree. And so went in that and, you know, went through pharmacy school. And it was really, it was very fortunate in my, the final year when we started doing our clinical rotations. My first uh, rotation was internal medicine, and it was at the time, it was at the VA in Iowa City, and I just fell in love. I knew that is what I wanted to do. All of a sudden, everything like this, I, I just couldn't get enough of it, and then heard about the PharmD program at the time. It was Iowa had had a master's in, in pharmacy for a great many years, but the PharmD program was relatively new. It was a 24-month post-baccalaureate um, program. And so at that time, it really, the mentors that I, I had, Iowa had some wonderful faculty. Uh, Dennis Helling was the director of the program at the time. And I would say that he was probably one of my first pharmacy mentors. And actually, you, you might find this, this is, you know, a farm girl at heart. You know, we have to, had to do seminars during our, our program. And, and I decided to do one on the impact of antibiotics and animal feed. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dennis thought that that would be a great, you know, opportunity to write an article. And so he challenged me to prepare an article on that uh, for publication. And boy, he had a lot of red pens. <laughs> and at one point he said, I think you need to get a little tighter, Lisa. And I, I kept going back and forth. And I finally said, I, we're going to have to submit it. I can't, I don't think I can cut it anymore. And, you know, it got approved uh, for publication right away. And it was actually in, you know, it used to be the no longer published, but uh, Drug Intelligence and Clinical Pharmacy or DICP. It was one of the journals of ACCP. So that was kind of fun. And when we would run into each other, he would talk about that. You know, now it's really a hot topic again. It was, wasn't quite so hot at the time, but that was my, my first mentor. And I really enjoyed my PharmD program. I ended up doing a one-year fellowship after that at the University of Iowa. I guess I couldn't get enough of Iowa City. So that's why I'm a true Hawkeye inside and out. And I was really trying to decide, I think, at the end of the, the PharmD program, there was a lot of encouragement to maybe go into a faculty position. I wasn't sure that's what I really wanted to do. And I think my year of fellowship is what a lot of, you know, at the time residencies weren't quite as popular and prevalent, I should say. I think the fellowship year, though, for me, did what a residency does for a lot of people. It's a year of maturation, and you kind of figure out what it is that you want to do. 
I knew that I enjoyed teaching and I kind of liked research, but it was clinical practice that I really wanted to do. So when I finished my program at the University of Iowa, my goal was to be the clinical pharmacist extraordinaire. And that was what my, you know, I wanted to do. At that point then, clinical pharmacy physicians weren't as prevalent at the time, but I knew that, and a lot of people were building programs. And so I knew I had a choice of either going into a program that was really established or going to one that was, you know, more in the the budding stages and developing. And I really realized I I like to to develop things more than go into an established program. Actually went to ASHP, went through the personal placement service, interviewed at quite a few places around the Midwest, but only got invited to one in-person interview. And and that was at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. It turned out to be a great match for me. I was very interested in cardiology and they had a a very big cardiac program there. And a couple of the people that were there, Mark Woods uh, was the, the clinical coordinator there at the time. And I think many people will recognize that name. Mark has been now a, a president of ASHP, but you know, at the time he was certainly very active in both Missouri and in Kansas societies. So uh, Dave Goff also was the director. He became the director just a few months after I started. And some people might know him. He became active in VHA and then at Bedford Labs. And now he's with the Generic uh, Pharmaceutical Association. He went into professional societies as well. So I think both of those two had a pretty good influence on me. And both are, I consider, friends. Uh, down in Kansas City, I really developed, I became a, a clinical specialist in cardiology. But I think the the first year I was doing that, as we developed a rounding service, Mark was very instrumental in getting that going. And I, I loved that. I, I just really loved working with two different groups of cardiologists and, and all the nurses in the critical care units. And that's really, I think, where I started to learn about collaboration and recognizing how important it was. But Dave Goff came to me and he knew that he wanted to add another assistant director in the department. And so he came to me and he goes, Lisa, I think you have some of the skills I'm looking for. You know, you're, you're a pretty good communicator. And that's one of the things I'm really looking for. And I sort of said, sure, you know, why not? I yeah. <laughs> kind of naively probably saying that. But I said, I do want to be able to continue doing my rounding, though. I, I really love it. And I, I can't give that up. Do you think I could do both? And he said yes to that. And so I really wore two hats for the, the remaining, I think I was there probably another six years. And so that really, I think, helped me develop. So I understood both sides of that. And, and I, I found out that I really loved leadership more than I thought I would and or, I, or knew that I would, I should say. And so that was pretty fascinating. Another piece, though, that I you mentioned mentors, and the other part of the story is that Sarah White was in Kansas City at the same time, and she was the associate director of pharmacy at the Kansas University Medical Center. And she was also probably had some type of professorship at the University of Kansas and certainly dealt with a lot of the preceptors in pharmacy school. And Mark and I, as we developed the program down there, and there's you know lots of stories I could tell about that too, but it really was also developing clerkships with both the University of Kansas and University of Missouri, Kansas City. There's two schools of pharmacy there. But I distinctly remember Sarah coming over and I had I was going to start doing a, a cardiology rotation with Kansas or KU. And I can still see Sarah sitting in my office. And I didn't know Sarah very well at this time. I mean, I knew who Sarah was, but she said, now, Lisa, I want you to realize that you are one of the few female role models that our female students are going to have. And I thought, oh, my God. And I almost like in my head, I thought something that I won't repeat on this podcast, (laughs) but I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, wow, I never had thought about that before. 
And I, I still remember that to this day. And I remind Sarah several times about that situation. She doesn't remember the conversation like I do. But interestingly, after I left Kansas City and then moved up to the, the Twin Cities, I regretted not getting to know Sarah better because I think she could have been a mentor for me at that time. And, you know, I had stayed in contact with her when I would be at an ASHP meeting. I'd always go and say hello and, and chat for a little bit. But uh, the thing that I'm really happy to say is years being up here and I became a director, I contacted Sarah. This was after, I think, after she had been president of ASHP and such. And she was at Stanford and actually had been just shortly retired, I think. And I said, Sarah, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a director. And I'm, I'm really wondering if we could have a phone call every month or so. And, you know, you could kind of help me mentor me in, in this new director position. And, and she said yes. And we've been doing a monthly phone call ever since. So I really and she that over the years that mentorship changed a bit from how to become a, a better director and improve my skills there and then as I became involved with ASHP she was very very supportive and encouraging of me to continue to advance through ASHP and really you know with the presidency and and, and all sorts of things so really good story of how the mentorship has evolved. Now, sometimes when we talk, it's a lot about our vacations and, and things like that, but it's, it's still, Sarah's always interested in hearing what's going on with me because I think it's, you know, she wants to stay in touch with that. And she obviously does so much teaching and leadership activities for other folks. And she wants to stay in tune with what, you know, people are dealing with on the front lines. Yeah. You know, you touched on so many interesting things. I love when you, you need know, the, you had to pause and decide do I want to go somewhere with an established program or go somewhere where it's being built? And I think that's something that our student pharmacists and people actually throughout your career, you know, when you have the opportunity to do that, to look at is, is really a, an interesting thing. And then like you, I also share Sarah White as a mentor and friend. And I, you know, I think about meeting her early in my career and I just appreciated kind of seeing how she handled things. And then her leadership journey, like you said, with ASHP, but I've really admired too that post Stanford in retirement, but I'm using, I'm doing air quotes, even though we're not physically in the room together. You know, she's clearly continues to be engaged in the profession and her mentoring and her leadership journey. And I think so many of us have learned from her and continue to learn from her and just see an example. And I think I shared this with you, but she had me on the ASHP Women in Pharmacy Leadership podcast a couple of years ago. And that was actually my very first podcast. And I have to say that that's foundational to you and I speaking today, because if I hadn't kind of been like, okay, Sarah, we can do this, you know, like, okay, we'll, we'll give it a try. And it, it went well, she's just so great. But it really led to us working together. We had worked together on Zeta Cooper and then some other things. So like you, I just, I share that. And I think we're really blessed to have her in the pharmacy profession and that she continues to touch. I mean, there's so many of us leaders that could speak to the legacy of Sarah White and how she's impacted us. Oh, so much. I mean, Sarah's almost one of those people in pharmacy that if you just say Sarah, people yeah. know who you're talking about. And I always tell her, I said, Sarah, I want to have a retirement like yours. Yes. And she just keeps learning so much. She's willing to try different things. I mean, like you say, podcast, and, and she understands about technology and, and several different things. And, and actually, you know, I, I can't continue about talking about Sarah without also talking about Bruce Scott. He was a mentor a little bit that certainly you know Bruce as well. And actually, I reached out to Sarah when I, my parents were getting older and starting to have health issues, and I wanted to get closer to home. And so I was looking in the Twin Cities. I'd always wanted to kind of move up here anyway. 
and a position became available here at United Hospital, and Bruce Scott was the director. Oh, yeah. And I actually, I don't know if I told you this story, but I contacted Sarah because I knew her well enough to call her up. And I said, you know, Sarah, I, I mean, I, I've met Bruce once or twice, and but I know that he was a resident with you, and, you know, he, he's well-known in, in Kansas City. I think he moved up here the same year that I went to Kansas City, so our paths just crossed. And I said, you know, I, I just need to know. I said, does he actually have his feet still on the ground, though, or is he just up, you know, because I just thought, you know, he seemed like such a big thinker <laughs> to me. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's... And, in Sarah's pragmatic way that she can say things, well, I think he's got his feet on the ground as much as any of us do. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. Wouldn't really tell me what to do, but you know, I mean, she thinks the world of Bruce. I think that was evident. So I, I just still re- remember that. And you know, I feel so blessed to have Mark Woods, Sarah White, and Bruce Scott. I consider all three of them very important mentors to me, all very different people. And I think that the nice thing is, especially for, for Mark and Bruce, I, I knew them and worked with them. We were colleagues. In fact, I'm sitting in the office that Bruce occupied before me and before they became president. So I, I knew what they were like. And I knew Sarah before she became ASHP president. So that was very helpful to me in really understanding that, you know, people that become ASHP presidents, they're, they're normal people. They just elected yeah. to do that. And that, in addition with a very dear friend of mine, was a national president in a, in a nursing organization. And I'd known her since high school. It just made me realize that this is something I can do because I know these people. And I also just saw what that presidency did for them as an individual. I mean, I saw how hard they had to work at it, but it was just, you know, how you you grow in that role as well. So I, I feel very blessed. And this was all, again, just sort of dumb luck a little bit where I landed that I got to meet these folks and, and get to know them. But I think you reinforced what we've heard from some of our other guests on the Melissa Rx Scripps podcast is that relationships matter. And I think about meeting Bruce. I met him early in my career when we worked on the Scope of Pharmacy Practice Project. ASHP had nominated him to serve on a task force. And, you know, of course, as you can imagine, he was excellent representing health system pharmacy. And then a few years later, we were in Baltimore for a P21, one of those pharmacy leadership conferences. And he and I were seated together, you know, those dinners that go on for hours. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> so we, we were at one of those. And then there was a group of people that were like, Okay. I mean, it was, it was like 10 o'clock. We're like, okay, who wants to walk back from, we were, I think we're in the inner Harbor walking back to the hotel or whatever. So there was a group of us that walked back together. And so then I got to know Bruce a little bit more and really became friends. And I was so supportive when he was ASHP president and really seeing his career transcend beyond just pharmacy and really focused on collaboration. And then, you know, when he moved into specialty pharmacy and always focused on the patient. And, you know, what I also like about him that you touched on, I think, with both Mark, Sarah, and Bruce, the number of people that they have developed and their leadership legacy throughout pharmacy. And we saw that with Bruce last year. It was kind of hard to believe I reached out to him a few weeks ago when it was the anniversary of, you know, the Whitney Award that he received. And I said, you know, as our world is so different this year in 2020, that it's, you know, it was just a year ago that we all gathered together to celebrate with him. So, yeah, that is a really cool thing. You know, we're recording and I mentioned the pandemic when we opened up and earlier today I did a webinar that ASHP hosted talking about residency programs and how they're different with COVID-19 and all of that. So can you kind of reflect to us how things are going for you all up in Minnesota through these last several months and then how your residents are doing and what's the same, what's different? Are there any silver linings? You know, they did talk about some things, even though they're so different 
that you can still find some silver linings related to collaboration or telehealth or whatever those things may be. Well, you know, as you say, what an interesting time it is, uh, especially here in Minneapolis or Minnesota. I, I'm on the St. Paul side, but especially then we had, you know, the riots in early June after um, you know, some of the tragedies yeah. that went on up here. And, you know, starting with COVID, you know, we didn't know. It, it felt like, I still remember pretty distinctly, it was, you know, mid-March when it really started to pick up the pace here. So we just had our new residents. we just gotten our match results reaching out to them and then even writing the letter to them that sort of seals the contractual arrangements that we have to do. And I had to modify, you know, my standard letter because I really didn't know what would happen at that time, seeing what was happening, you know, especially on the East Coast and some other parts of the country. I didn't even know if they would let us bring the residents into the hospital at the time. Right. Such an uncertainty. There was. And I knew I couldn't even think about it, you know, what was going to happen or worry about that until we got closer to it. So just even with that start and that shift of things and, you know, writing a letter saying this is unprecedented times and, you know, I'm not exactly sure what July 1st will bring us, but, you know, I just need you to know that we are going to do whatever we can you know, we'll work together and we'll work through this and we'll figure it out. I mean, I probably said it a little differently than that in a, in a letter, but, you know, for our staff here, there was such a sense of fear and unknown and things of that nature. And people were afraid. I mean, we didn't know how COVID was necessarily transmitted. And people were almost treating it a little bit like Ebola at first here. So we had to deal with some of those fear factors and such. And then just to kind of, for the folks listening, Minnesota, we kind of spared, we were spared the, these huge surges. We kept hearing about the surge that was coming. And then whenever a new model would come out, the surge was push down the road a little bit further and, and maybe not quite as big a peak. And I guess we Minnesotans were, we followed the rules. I think there was one poll out there that said we were the best social distancers of any state. But as, even though we kind of joke about that, I mean, we we have been able, we, we did not exceed our capacity. We prepared for the worst and we're planning for how many ICU beds there would be in, in the city and and having anesthesiology folks be in our critical care areas and did a lot of work in prepping for it. But we, we didn't actually see that. But at the time when we were trying to deal with that, we didn't know it. And just trying to prepare the staff, I remember having a conversation. We we have daily huddles and we were still having them. We tried to spread out in the pharmacy. We now still have them, but we have the pharmacist upstairs call in so we don't have so many people in a smaller space. But I, you know, I always read a Covey's book of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People with our my PG-1 class every year. And one of the chapters is about begin with the end in mind. And I actually used that quote. And I said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, I just want us to think about when everything is said and done, and we look back on this, what do we want to feel good about? And I said, I'm hoping that people will look at us and say, you know, pharmacy, they were essential, and, and they really helped us out. And that is the way that things should have been done. Yeah, you know, we're not through it yet. I'm hoping that people feel that way. In regards to the residents, you know, we had to make a decision. Were we going to have them work from home and do remote work or did we want them here? And I have always, you know, we've been through a strike, you know, up here, a nursing strike with the residents a year. And I've always looked at those. These are wonderful learning opportunities that hopefully they yeah. won't have to go through again. But by gosh, I think they need to be here to experience it. And we're going to do everything we can, obviously, to protect them safe and not put them in a bad situation or anything of that nature. So we had them here and they helped. They were up in the patient care units and they were helping the staff. In fact, when we thought we might be getting, you know, overwhelmed at the hospital, what better time to have, you know, this happen for us than when we're towards the end of a residency year and we have these, you know, pretty well-trained residents 
that yeah. can be great extenders for us and, and take on almost full responsibility, if not full responsibility as the regular pharmacist. So we talked to them about it and, and they that's what they wanted to do. And in fact, each one of them at the end said, you know, I'm glad that you let us stay. And one of the things that came out from one of them was she said she really enjoyed watching us as the leadership team and how we, you know, were trying to be transparent with what was going on and keeping people informed. And so for her, it was also observation of how you deal with this as a leader too. Yeah, like what it what it could look like. Yeah. So, you know, we're not through it yet. So then then there was quite this transition and, and our pharmacists were worried. They were used to having these very well trained residents, that July first phenomenon, you know. And then right, and, so, yeah. and they were helping uh, because even though our census didn't really go up, in fact, we went way down with our census because uh, we did the, the governor did like a lot of places do and, and limited the number of surgeries we could have to protect, uh, you know, patients, but also preserve our PPEs. But then those got opened back up and the financial challenges, we were trying to do more with less and all of that. So the residents were of a great assistance. I, I kept telling them, I said, I, I really would like to be there when you talk about this experience with your children and grandchildren. What are, what are you going to say? Because you lived through it. I, I'm curious what that will be. But it, it was all good and they were, they were great assets to us. The new residents coming in, you know, one of the concerns that a lot of folks have had is uh, could they even get licensed? And because of the testing facilities, and I am really pleased that when I first started talking and communicating with incoming residents, their NAPLEX and law exams were scheduled for September. <laughs> but I said, you know, I, I keep thinking they're going to open up sites, so please just keep checking. And they did that, and so they all have been able, you know, to take their exams, and some are still waiting for some results, but that got better, at least in this immediate area here. And we're getting them trained, and, you know, they're going upstairs, they're, they're getting their face shields and they're fit tested for N95s and, and everything right out of the right out of the gate here, but they're ready to go too. So really good stories of our pharmacists really stepping up and been very proud of them. Well, I just so appreciate how you talked about that and outlined it because I think it highlighted too the dynamic nature, especially in the early days where there was a lot of information and then, you know, things would change. And so it sounds like the communication strategies that you all had with being transparent and, you know, talking about what you knew and, and how things were going to work. And like you said, boy, what amazing experience though for your residents in last year's class. And then this year's class coming in, because, you know, I, I think the resilience that you build in navigating licensure when things are a little bit different and then just figuring out, you know, I did hear, it was interesting. They talked about, I think it was at UVA in Charlottesville that the residents weren't really able to come look at housing and try to figure out where they were going to live. And so they had put together a housing document of where residents had lived in the past and what their commutes were like and how that seemed to be a fit for getting them to the hospital. And, you know, I think it's, there's been like creative ways that people have looked to address, well, things are different. We know that. And so how are we going to try something new and what would that look like? And also extend a bit of grace that, you know, we're all trying to figure this out take care of each other and also then navigate, you know, you mentioned the fear at first because there were a lot of things that we just didn't know. You know, I'll, I'll be a little vulnerable here and share my biggest concern as a, that actually, you know, I first became a, a, a director several years ago, that term lonely at the top, I finally knew what it meant. <laughs> and yeah. I wasn't all that high up the food chain, but it was, you know, the top of the department and you did feel kind of lonely and you kind of, and there were some nights where I would wake up and I just couldn't fall asleep because I thought of what am I forgetting, but you get used to that. You know, I've learned how to kind of get through that. 
I had some sleepless nights again because I kept wondering, you know, am I doing the right thing? Because some people are letting their staff do remote order entry from home. And I felt like, you know, but you're missing that. You're not here. And there's a difference if you were here and present, you know, seeing folks, um, even though we didn't see as many people, I mean, interacting because there were, you know, certain restrictions put in place. But I, I did worry, am I, am I doing the right thing for the staff? Am I, you know, am I doing the right thing for our patients? Are we doing, are we doing the right thing? And there's just, there's no playbook for what we've gone through here. There's no playbook. And so the term grace has been used a lot. And I, and I keep telling myself that too, especially now as we're going through the tougher financial times because of just everything that has happened and, and people, you know, are, are struggling with that. Everyone is struggling. And so showing grace, uh, but still trying to help making sure that we're doing the right things for our patients. It's, it's that steady balance of things. And I guess that's what uh, we, we do in leadership is we have to find that right balance. It can be challenging some days. It can be challenging. And I think that you shared the vulnerability is really important. And I know I was on a call, I want to say it was in May, and someone talked about how messy some of these things are. Messy from the standpoint of the ups and downs and, you know, things can be moving along and then something changes. And we're just seeing a lot of that now as we're talking about the fall and schools and what's going to happen. I mean, that's, that's just one piece that there's just a lot of different things. So, you know, I think you sharing that. And it sounds though, from what you've shared, that it's a, it's been a positive experience for your residents. And, you know, like this, the webinar that I was on today too, I guess what I found really interesting and made me smile is the moments of joy, like things are different, but they talked about their residency graduation and how they did it virtual and they made videos. And, you know, a moment of joy was that families were able to participate in ways that they never had before that, you know, maybe physically they couldn't, come to the residency graduation because of either distance or work commitments, but because things were different this year, there was a Zoom session. And so there was much more engagement. We were part of a first communion and it was, you know, physically, we weren't able to be there, John and I, a couple weeks ago for my eight-year-old nieces, but we watched it live via Facebook, I think. And John was able to actually film the moment. So I don't know, there's, there's interesting things through all this that it's different, but we can still see positive, I guess. Yeah, you know, I really like that idea, and I wish I would have thought of it to, you know, have the family Skype in for the, the luncheon that we had, because that would have been kind of nice. You know, I was trying to figure out what to do, because usually uh, we have a barbecue at my house, but I, I just didn't feel comfortable bringing everyone together for that, because I knew we would not keep socially distanced in my backyard. It just, it's hard to do that. So that meant that I had to limit who would be able to come to this, so we could spread out in the, the one of the conference rooms here at the hospital. But I did a, something called a kudos board because I was trying to think, how can I get the staff to sort of be able to still express saying thanks to these guys? And so for me, it was just it was this kudos board and people had some fun with that. And I know the residents really enjoyed that. And that's something they'll be able to download and, and keep for, you know, as long as they want. So it really offers us some new ways of doing things. And I think that's kind of nice. Yeah. And, you know, I think that kudos board, people talked about something similar to that. I think the idea of how can you recognize someone or say thank you or even have gratitude? I mean, we know that that is just a positive emotion. And if you think about what's going on today, that's right. And there are a lot of things that are right. For sure, there's challenges. But I think that that's really, really interesting. Well, you know, on these podcasts, and this has been so awesome talking with you and catching up. And I really look forward to when you and I are going to be able to be together again, physically in the same room and, and all that good stuff, which I know will happen. I do ask our guests while I have you, is there one prescription 
or life lesson you'd like to share with others in the spirit of Melissa Eric Scripps? Wow. You know, I think the life lesson I have, especially in leadership, is that, you know, at the end of the day, you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, is this okay? Can I live with myself? Because you, you have to be able to go home and say, yep, this was the right thing to do. I think that it's a little bit of humility and honesty, and, and you've got to just do what you think is the right thing to do, and you have to feel good about it. It's not always an easy thing to do, but I, I think that's what I usually try to tell people. You have to really be true to yourself and know what your values are, and you have to, to stay with those. I love that. So it sounds like you had examples where your gut was nudging you a certain way and you needed to listen to that? You know, I think sometimes I, I didn't listen to my gut and it was a little earlier in the career and it was, you know, maybe about an individual that, you know, I think we, especially when you're trying to hire people, you got to listen to that gut because it's telling you something. It's especially around, you know, decisions like that. Do you feel okay about it? And you, sometimes you're, you got to think with your head and you got, you know, we pharmacists, we're, we're very obviously data driven. Yes. But we, we have to also, you know, trust our gut a little bit. Is this the right thing to do at, at this time? And I always tell people, you, you kind of know sometimes when you're struggling with a decision, once you finally made it, usually you, you know you've made the right one because you feel good about it, but it, you didn't ever think you were going to, you know, at that time. Yeah. Well, and I find too that sometimes when you don't trust your gut and then something happens, it's such a good lesson. Like, okay, like that sign was in front of me or, you know, maybe I should have taken more time or whatever, but it's, I always then think, okay, what can I learn from this? Yeah. And like, what can be, what can be different next time? I don't know. There's always lessons through that. That is something I try to emphasize to folks, especially when someone said they, they kind of messed up on something. And I say, I've always, the things that I have not done the best are that when something goes well, you start with that. When something goes well, you sometimes really don't know why it went well. And there could have been a dozen different reasons why it went well. And But when something goes wrong, usually you kind of can point to things. And so I've always learned so much more from my mistakes and when I didn't do something the right way than when something went well. Because I, like I said, I don't always know what I did to make something go well. So I think there's so much value you can learn, but you just can't dwell on it too terribly long. I tend to ruminate a little bit too long. I've learned over the years, you got to let it go. But there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. We learn from, as long as you learn from them, you can move forward. No, I, I'm with you, Lisa. It's like, learn from it and let it go and then don't ruminate. Easier said than done for me. That's something I always have to work on. <laughs> me? Oh, no, I am sitting here smiling because that is the same for me. But I think it's a, it's a gentle reminder that learn from it and, and let it go. Well, I have to tell you, it has been such a joy to talk with you this afternoon. And I really appreciate your time. And I want to say thank you to our listeners for following the Melissa Alex Scripps podcast and to check us out on social media. And I want to give a special shout out to my fabulous producer, Kate Cruz with Executive Podcast Solutions. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Melissa.